0: It's the 6th of March, 2015. The second most intense tropical cyclone to ever hit the South Pacific Ocean is headed straight to Vanuatu. Cyclone Pam would go on to become one of the worst natural disasters in Vanuatu's history, affecting 188,000 people.
1: I mean, I'm really, really frustrated at the moment uh, because of the lack of communications to uh, communicate with people or high authorities uh, in the provinces or even in the capital. I haven't got the extent of the damage from uh, all the other islands and other provinces in the country. When the warning came, people uh, have prepared, but we didn't expect that, of the, that the cyclone would be dangerous. It was.
0: That was Baldwin Lonsdale, former president of Vanuatu. Days after the cyclone began to wreak havoc, the international surge response of both people and stuff began to land on the doorstep of Port Vila. The scale and speed of the international response made it difficult for the government of Vanuatu to exercise the control and coordination they had hoped to. This is I Think You're On Mute. podcast exploring who's talking and who's listening in a humanitarian emergency and how we can improve humanitarian response for the better. I'm your host, Beth Eggleston. I recently chatted to Shirley Abraham from Vango, or the Vanuatu Association of Non-Governmental Organisations, about what the aftermath of Cyclone Pam was like. I would love to hear from a personal perspective actually first Shirley on what it was like I I mean I've heard from people that were there during the cyclone and just how utterly catastrophic and terrifying it was Um, but yeah if you're able to tell us a little bit about what it was actually like to endure that and then I'd love to hear yeah from an NGO point of view what you know what the coordination was like what you know how the response unfolded
2: okay so Um, Maybe let me say a little bit of maybe my personal view on during and after, or maybe before and after TC PAM that was in 2015. So I guess it was one of the first um, category cyclone that reached like this category five where, you know, it's, it's a new experience for me and even also for the people of Vanuatu and especially in Efate that were you know greatly um impacted by the you know destructions that uh, caused the massive like uh, devastation on the land but also the infrastructure and also the maybe agriculture vegetation and all that i would say that maybe uh, before then um people were not you know because people have never experienced um, this this uh, category 5 cyclone everyone was was not that uh, maybe prepared or maybe from my perspective everyone was not that prepared to face um one of this uh category 5 cyclone and so people are just um maybe people are just uh thinking that oh it might be another cyclone that would come through but not to that extent and so you know, when we were able to be, you know, the cyclone has hit Vanuatu in that category five, I think after uh, posts, or maybe right after the cyclone, maybe on that um, stage where uh, people are now seeing the major destructions that have caused by TCPAM. A lot of the people, maybe from my perspective, have regretted that they should have maybe more prepared or they should have been, more um, able to assess whether or not their houses or even their land or even uh, any infrastructure building is secure enough to save the community. You know, at that time as well, like, you know, people uh, have seen this, you know, big devastating uh,
0: destructions that um, happened to their livelihoods. I guess I was keen to understand How would you characterise the the coordination of that response? Um, Yeah, and I guess looking at the government authorities trying to to manage this huge influx of organisations and and materials, um, yeah, what what were your views on the coordination? That,
2: you know, after it hits the the country, a lot of the NGO were able to mobilise themselves and, and go into the community as more timely or maybe more efficient in how they coordinate, they, they work to support the affected community. And so in 2019, 2019 or 2020, I think the government has launched the aid coordination management policy. And that is to, I think, I guess, maybe specifically to manage the bilateral and multilateral funding that can be able to help to directly have a structure to disperse the funds the government has also maybe just this year has worked with van Gogh to be able to do a national mapping of all the different stakeholders and not the stakeholders sorry the, the ngos that are working in other different provinces and then do a mapping of what are the different sectors that they're working on and and also like you know humanitarian response I mean humanitarian aid would be part of it as well as other different sectors but Vango has developed like a full map with support from Save the Children uh, I think three years ago or two years ago of making sure what are the different who is doing what and the range from international, community, national, and also uh, community-based, yeah, CBOs, which we are also in that stage of talking to the government about a stream that could be, because the aid coordination policy is to mobilize all this funding from international or bilateral and multilateral, but our concern as well is so that the um, funding that comes in has to be streamlined, not just, because the way it is now is just through the government um, structure that was from the national level to the provincial and to the area councils and, and down to the community. And so this is our aim, especially once we have made this updated mapping, then we will be able to um, negotiate for a stream that would be directly to the NGOs community-based organizations yeah, once the disaster hits.
0: Wow. So it seems that it- do you think it was Cyclone Plan that put in motion, or all of the work that you've been doing, from a like a policy level all the way down to a more grassroots coordination level? It sounds like there is definitely, um, I don't know if you would say more coordination mechanisms. I think it it started off. I, I guess
2: maybe the, I think the context of maybe the work of humanitarian aid in Vanuatu has, you know, over time just people are working on like what are the lessons learned how can we improve how can we go further and so it started off in 2015 would be in a small scale I guess and then over time where the disaster has you know it's not just the uh, second category five that hit santo in um, 2020 but it was also the uh, displacement of the volcano in Ambai and maybe other disasters that you know hit the other other volcano disasters as well in other islands like Tana, I guess from that time. Because of the, I think, I think because of the first disaster, it was realized by maybe INGOs especially that there is a very big need and there is a gap of community knowledge. And also, but but maybe most importantly from my perspective, it's not just community knowledge, but Community um, institutions and resources that were lacking at that time, and so I felt that um, the the international at that time they come in, they see the need, but they are mostly focused on how they build themselves up, but not how they build the communities. Starting from two thousand fifteen, and so that is where we have strongly advocated about what are the sustainability of supporting communities on that. You know, during during that time.
0: We're a long way from the shores of Vanuatu now. In fact, we're on Queen Street in the heart of Melbourne. It's a Thursday in late August and it's characteristically cold. The HAG team are sitting down for a staff meeting. We created Humanitarian Advisory Group, or HAG as we're known, 10 years ago. Four women who'd been working in humanitarian crises all around the world, from Rwanda to Afghanistan, and now wanted to ask the hard questions on how things could be done better. We're now a team of 15, working with key regional partners to help us ask and answer those hard questions. Kate Sutton, co-founder and director of Humanitarian Advisory Group, was there with me from the very beginning. Good morning, Kate. Thanks so much for joining. How was your weekend? Yeah, lovely. Thank you, Beth. How was yours? Yeah, all right. Um, It's nice to chat with you. We're very excited to be Having this time to be able to hear from you on our new podcast, which is very exciting. And Kate, I mean, it's been 10 years of hag. We've been 10 years of being hags now. Oh, oh no, my goodness. <laughs> and I, I wanted, I guess, to, to ask a couple of questions you know, while I've got you about you know, a little bit about your experience actually as well, and you know, what's led you to this point. Um, and you've worked in many places across the world. Uh, not just in protracted crisis, but also in that rapid onset peace. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about this, you know, over a glass of wine perhaps, but I would love if you're able to um, describe a bit about what it what it feels like to be in the midst of a humanitarian emergency and the kind of things, you know, that were going through your mind. I know, for example, that, you know, that you were deployed, you know, at the pointy end of the Indian Ocean tsunami, you um, So, yeah, just your reflections on what that feels like. Yeah, of course. Um, And my goodness, the Indian
3: Ocean tsunami feels like such a long time ago now and the humanitarian aid sector has moved on such a long way. But um, it it was a really enormous response, that one. And I think, you know, we deployed very quickly. Um, I was in one of the rapid response teams um, and we arrived in country within the first couple of weeks and I think just the enormity of of the devastation was really quite um, confronting, and I think um, lots of you know humanitarian aid workers would would feel that when they arrive in a place, just the the empathy for the communities and recognizing the enormous challenges that they are facing. It was really interesting in that particular one, sometimes when you arrive in a place, you come with preconceived ideas as to what the challenges or issues may be, and then they can sometimes be quite different. Um, And a lot of the challenge um, in that particular response was actually the clear up. And so there was lots of challenges around how to manage debris and how to actually manage um, the rubbish and, and that sort of thing, which is interesting now, kind of full circle. As we're doing some of the work we do here at HAG looking at kind of the environmental impact of response and and how we manage waste in a way that actually um, isn't damaging for the environment and you know so I think it's interesting you know I feel very lucky to be in a position that I'm in now where you can kind of sit back and reflect on some of those experiences I had um, you know many years ago um in in places like Afghanistan and Ethiopia and you kind of then are able to to have this position where we can sit and think, well, wow, how could we have done that differently? And what could we have learned from it? I think the Indian Ocean tsunami was particularly interesting because the aid sector came out of that particular experience and was able to very critically reflect on what they had done wrong. And I think there were lots of things that needed to shift in the sector coming out of that. And there was a massive, I don't know if you remember it, that massive evaluation that took place where all the agencies got together and kind of said, what do we do differently? And I think there were some really um, interesting changes that that came out of that around coordination and how to work better together. So yeah, interesting times to reflect back on.
0: So interesting what you say about how, you know, the Indian Ocean tsunami being that, you know, one of those big flashpoints and how the sector has shifted or changed or reflected since then. In terms of your career though, Kate, I mean, you, you've worked with, you know with Oxfam you've worked with World Vision, you know, obviously your stellar 10 years with Hag. Um, I'm keen though, if you could share with us what what would people find most surprising about your career in the humanitarian sector? Is anything that stands out that you think people would people would think, oh, I didn't think Kate would do that. <laughs> oh my goodness Beth. <laughs> Are you allowed to land that
3: sort of question on me without any um prior warning?
0: <laughs> That's what I've done for you the last 10 years. So you love it. <laughs>
3: what would people find surprising? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that people are always really surprised about is that one of the first countries that I actually worked in was Albania, um, and many people, you know, I quite often come across people who say, is that a state in the US? And I'm like, no, it's actually a country, um, you know, so <laughs> it's it's not so well known, um, I, you know, obviously it became much better known through the, the Kosovo crisis, um, and we were working with the refugee caseload who were in Albania, and Albania was just a fascinating country um to to live and work in for a couple of years so that that was interesting because that sort of took my career on a trajectory that really focused a lot on migration and refugee issues and I guess the other interesting twist and turn then is that then arriving in Australia and obviously I'm from England so you know I never necessarily expected to end up in this part of the world and all my early career was um very Africa and European based and, and so I guess the other thing that, that's a bit interesting is the kind of twist and turn it's taken with ending up doing more work in the Pacific, which really, um, that the focus is not on so much on um, migration and refugees, although obviously with the climate crisis now, we need to be thinking much more about displacement as a result of that. But, um, you know, kind of, I, I guess, shifting more from a, an early focus in my career on protection and Um, human rights and refugee rights um, and and now um, taking quite a different turn to look more at natural disasters and responses in, in that way.
0: That's quite perfect and I feel I feel a book title coming on Kate from Albania to Australia and beyond like I feel like we can really do something with that maybe that's a podcast that could be great. Some of the thinking and chats that we have had we talk a lot about the humanitarian system the system itself how it works, how it doesn't work, the concept of systems change. And there was a lot of talk, especially in the lead-up to the World Humanitarian Summit, about this concept of the system being broken. And I guess I'm keen just to understand from you, I mean, do you think the system is broken? Uh, And if so, do you feel like we're heading in the right direction to to fix it, or or can it be fixed, really? That's a very big question for
3: this early in the morning, Beth, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot. I, th- I think the challenge is, is that the original foundations of the system, which may have been appropriate at the time, are no longer appropriate, but so much has then been built up on those foundations, that the idea of unpacking it all just becomes such an enormous an enormous task. And I think a lot of it is uh, based on power imbalance and just inequalities in, in the sector. And so much of that is because people who are in power very often don't want to release power and unfortunately you know and I think very much all of us when we come into the humanitarian aid system you, you come in with this this sense of, of believing that everybody is there for the right reasons and it's all the right intentions but we're talking about people's jobs and lives there are people who've worked in ingos and un organizations for years and years and and, you know, and I truly believe everybody is, is doing their best and trying really hard But the idea of unpacking systems which actually support our own interests in the Western world, I think is incredibly challenging and so. yeah I, I do think there are some fundamental problems with the way we work as a system, and I do think it's going to take some really brave people who are going to be willing to try and unpack
0: that. In 2016, we took a punt and funded ourselves to travel to the first ever World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. We wanted to understand what the key issues were at the global level. People kept saying the humanitarian system was broken and we wanted to know why and what should be done to fix it. Disasters are
4: striking with increased frequency and severity, causing suffering for millions of people. No country is immune. We need new solutions new ways of responding, new pathways to resilience. This is why I will convene the first ever World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul in 2016. No one had really heard
0: of us then, and we didn't get the chance to sit down with the likes of Julia Gillard, Angela Merkel, or even Daniel Craig, who were all at the summit. But what we learned in Istanbul really made us determined to try and answer some of those hard questions. This idea led to the creation of our Humanitarian Horizons research program. So it was back in 2017 that I received a call from Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It was exciting news. They agreed to support the first three years of Humanitarian Horizons. It was designed to be a multi-year independent research initiative exploring how the humanitarian sector can do better, particularly with regards to the leadership of local actors. The success of the program has led to DFAT supporting another three years of research, success that's been built on the collaboration with local research experts from the region. I caught up with James Gilling, who heads up the Humanitarian and Partnerships Division at DFAT, to discuss DFAT's work in the humanitarian sector. So James, you've got a lot of experience when it comes to working on humanitarian issues. I'm keen to understand a bit more about DFAT's support to research and evidence, such as uh, programs like Humanitarian Horizons.
4: Okay, well, thanks very much for the the question. Look, I'm actually not as experienced as you might think. This is not my first sort of developmental role. In fact, I came relatively late in life to humanitarian. But one of the things that uh, really strikes you as you take on humanitarian responsibilities is how they literally can be matters of of life and death and matters of life and death that happen, you know, in sometimes hours. So there's not really time to uh, reflect and change course in the middle of a response for many pieces of the work that we do. And therefore learning as you go is really, really important. And um, that's why I've been a real um, uh, fan of, processes like the um, Horizons work that we do to ensure that we are learning and um, this in this particular case um, the work that we're doing with the with the Horizons project is is really about making sure that we learn all the lessons we need to on localization and the lessons that we need to um, learn about um, greening the uh, humanitarian uh, activities so what we've been doing this is now the second partnership we've uh, pulled together and this partnership which lasts for about three years is purpose-built really to make sure that we've got time to learn those lessons from all the different activities that are going on around us Um, and to ensure that you know when the when the next cat5 hits a, a a very dense population area we're not going in recommitting the errors of the past, that we're going in knowing what the problems have been and knowing how to do a better job.
0: Yes, and the, the problems are, are huge, absolutely. And your team, James, does you know, work in so, at so many levels, from the policy level, the response level, and has a real focus on the Indo-Pacific region. In your view, how can the humanitarian sector and the response that that sector provides be strengthened in the Indo-Pacific region?
4: Yeah, well, well I think the place to probably start actually, Beth, is is with that word sector, because one of the problems I think that we've got in responding globally to humanitarian crises is that we do tend to put people in sort of uh silos. And the reality is that the, the humanitarian challenge, uh the crises that we have managed to uh or that we We experience and that we have yet to really champion um, are crises that um, involve multiple aspects of of the development process, multiple aspects of community existence, uh, multiple aspects of life. And if we try, if we think we can just confine those to a couple of international NGOs who are good at responding, or indeed a couple of bilateral donors that are good at responding, then we'll always fail. So I think the first point to make is that the humanitarian project is actually a very broad project, and we, it needs to be broad, as in sort of multi-sectoral, but it needs to be broad as in inclusive as well. And the mistakes that we have sort of stumbled into over the years, and tragically still stumble into, are mistakes where we forget that people, that disabled people, that that women, that children, that elderly people that people from uh, particular minorities can experience um, humanitarian crises in different ways. And if we try and deal with them as if they're all the same, then we will not be able to alleviate their suffering and save their lives collectively. So really, I think the problem st- the, the initiative of improving our work in humanitarian needs to start with that concept of a, a humanitarian sector, which I think is, is a flawed one.
0: And you've mentioned... The, the the localization piece and, and the greening how we're delivering humanitarian aid. Can you tell us a bit more about how DFAT is supporting wider humanitarian reform?
4: So we, we, it's, I mean, we've only got to look at the, even the news today about what's happening in Pakistan, for example, and, or China for, you know, these unprecedented, I mean, that word unprecedented is used time and again. We are experiencing impacts that we have never seen before so we have to make sure that we can do better because one thing we all know for certain is we're not going to get if i was good enough at maths and could give you the exact sort of scale of growth of the crises that we're experiencing i can guarantee you that no government internationally is going to simply you know take that number and increase the aid program by that much, or increase the local government funding by that much. So we've got to get more efficient. So the work that we've been looking at is, how do we get that whole that whole system, that whole humanitarian system to work more effectively? And the two areas that, that we've decided to prioritize involve localization, that is backing local leaders, helping the people who experience, I mean, We forget that in the first 24, 48 hours, it's actually local people who are providing the dominant response. How do we ensure that we can support that response, that we don't come in over the top and get in the way? So we've got multiple activities, multiple partnerships with groups. I think a really good example is the Australian Red Cross, who, together with us, share this passion, share this commitment to to back local leadership and we pull together uh, to try and ensure that we don't that we are empowering and the the work that the uh, Australian Red Cross has been doing you know in 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 2015 the Australian Red Cross employed 93 staff in international programs in their international programs department and and today it's down to 39 and i think that tells a tale in terms of how the ARC is passing, and we're part of that program, is passing leadership, is backing the leadership of local, uh, of local people in the humanitarian space.
0: One of the first partners for HAG on humanitarian horizons was Indonesia's Pugiono Centre. I caught up with the centre's director, Dr Puji Pugiono, recently. Huge thank you to you, Dr Puji Pugiono, from the Pugiono Centre in Indonesia. We have worked with you, I mean, on several projects now, Puji, which has been a delight. And you and I have presented on other panels together, and yeah, we um, we have learned a lot from the Puji Ones Center, and are looking forward to to doing more. And today, I'm really keen to understand a bit more from you because you've been so heavily involved over the years on looking at designing, rethinking what humanitarian response looks like in Indonesia. So maybe I'll kick off, Puji, by asking you, why do you think the humanitarian system needs strengthening in Indonesia? And what are some of the key issues for you?
1: Well, uh, Beth, first of all, thank you for for having me in this conversation. And it's always a pleasure to to work with you. And this is uh, but uh, another opportunity for us to share thought and learn from from one another. Now, going straight to your questions, uh, there are some considerations that, that make me think something has to be done about the humanitarian response in Indonesia in particular. One, definitely Indonesia is, is prone to disasters and conflict. You know, uh, the, the future of the country itself, just um, making it very rich, but at the same, same time also high risk uh, on disasters and, and conflict. and And also the pandemic, obviously, that would necessitate um, special discussion on what's construed to be humanitarian and what it means operationally. Number two, as much as uh, civil society have uh, managed to push the legislation on disaster management and for the last 15 years it's already maturing, I suppose. but humanitarian is not really part of that uh, you know uh, system explicitly. It is uh, contained in the emergency response and partnership and what's not, but it doesn't have really, a, um, a segment in it that accommodates humanitarian as such. And number three, I personally and professionally feeling challenged and disturbed in a way of what happened with the narrative of humanitarian response, Beth. It has been always stuck in my mind that humanitarian reform seems to be a conversation that is about and dominated by the global north and have limited or little respect of what the local have to say or need to say and do with regard to this. So these are three things that motivate myself and the Center to get ourselves into humanitarian uh, response uh, discourses.
0: Thank you, Pugi. Um, especially just picking up on your last point. I think mean, you're so right. It's so, It's almost, there's almost a cruel irony there that a lot of what humanitarian reform is meant to be focusing on is around local leadership and yet that's the very voices that are not leading the conversation at the global level. So I suppose that's partly why we're so inspired by the work that you do and that you have done over many years. I have very much enjoyed learning about your experiences, you know, in many different contexts. And you've worked in field operations. You've worked in um, high-level managerial positions. And I guess I'm keen to understand The work that you're doing now with the Pugiono Centre and the partnership that um, the Pugiono Centre has with HAG, I guess I'm keen to understand how you feel that that is, you know, contributing to the humanitarian conversation.
1: Yeah, uh, well, first of all, um, Pugiono Centre and myself, and largely inspired by and driven by my experience, you know, I've been there, I've done that in many crises of of the world. And when I returned to Indonesia, uh, that reality struck me that I'm I'm in the the midst of it, right? And then uh, I guess looking back, um, suddenly, unprecedentedly, the Central Sulawesi earthquake and tsunami provided that unprecedented opportunity, if you like, uh, where the government changed their policy and explicitly prevented or limiting the international actors to come in. And um, in part, this is inspired by governments uh, overconfidence, I suppose, that they can handle it. But also for fairness, they also express how inconvenient it is for them to have international actors or indiscriminate actors coming in and do what's supposed to be human response, right? So that policy provided that unprecedented stage for localization perhaps by, by accident rather than by design, yeah? So in, in that context, we came across, or hack actually reached out to Pugeno Center by reference, or uh, hearsay from someone, right? And we happened to have a common interest in that. And that fused our collaboration in uh, our first research, unique research, in capturing the first 100 days of the crisis in, in Central Sulawesi. And that prospered into partnership into, you know, a more multi-year partnership and so on. Let me just try to characterize the way we work together that make us in in one way uh, um, benefited greatly. First of all, the way we work together, the uh, Umayyad Advisory Group and Bucino Center was a partnership where we see one another eye to eye, right? That we explicitly said that this is a mutual learning. No one is smarter than the other. Right, And that, uh, in addition to, or bundled with the technical work that we committed, we also embedded into it, the nurturing attitude. You know, Pujano Center is, is, is a unique and small organization in, in a, more, a small town in Indonesia. And we're focusing on knowledge management, knowledge building, you know, and not the typical responding to crisis like everybody else. We are very, very, among very few, uh, local NGO that does this. So that similarity struck uh, the partnership and through, in the course of doing that research and the ensuing and, and subsequent researches, that relationship become a nurturing relationship in which I feel now you have to confirm with me that we managed to leverage one another position, right? Pucciano Center increasingly become more viable uh, research organization, knowledge building, reaching out to regional, you know, even globally, with, right. So we felt we we found a platform, we found a voice to articulate what we see and experience on the ground, and uh, I would like to believe that HAG, on the other hand, also gain confidence, right, for the studies and researches that you have a more direct access to local insights, perspective, and practices. And along the way, HAC help us to do other things like uh, human resources, uh, administration, finance, management, and things like that. Uh, you know, that that's helpful. And the fact that it is multi-year, it's not just one short deal that bring us the scope, you know to go beyond the technical and try to learn what HAC is doing, what Pujero Center is doing. And, uh, I think that that's very interesting uh, that multi-year and the third one, which is also, I believe it's exemplary is the notion of flexibility. Beth. So when in the midst of the research, the follow follow through research, the pandemic hits Indonesia and the world, right? Hack has been gently with understanding, I suppose, allow us to pivot our focus from just general research on humanitarian reform into building, catalyzing a network of NGOs to respond to COVID, right? So let me stop there just to characterize that the relationship has been one is strengthening, number two, nurturing, but number three has a flexibility in it in a multi-year term. So I think this is what localization should look like in the relationship.
0: Yes, and I, I agree with you that the multi-year nature of the work that we can do with Humanitarian Horizons um, is, is really good for partnership. But I think it's it's so much of the guidance we have received from partners like yourself that have that depth of experience, the depth of network, but also looking at the innovative ways in which you're working from which we have learned. Over the next three episodes, we'll be talking to our partners from across the region, unpacking some of the challenges we face in contemporary humanitarian responses, including localisation, accountability to affected people and greening the system. Stay tuned. I'm Beth Eggleston, and this is I Think You're On Mute.